I have to admit, I don't really buy into New Year's resolutions. For one, at least in this hemisphere, they're made at the worst point in the year. Take the darkest, coldest, most gloomy moments that require all of your best effort just to get out of bed, and then put an obligation on top of that to better yourself. To go-getters out there who wake up early and run their 10k before work, this is probably a dream. To me, someone whose depression peaks in January, it's a reminder of how broken I feel. Resolutions to me are planning what to do with my springs and summers, to look forward, make plans, and have a reason to push through freezing temperatures, waiting for warmth, and coping as best as I can until then. Resolutions as a result remind me of failed and forgotten projects. What a great resolution it would be to pick up the remnants of these attempts and resurrect them, or at least remember them. So here, unceremonially, is a short list of projects I've abandoned, all two of my previous resolutions. One year, I vowed to follow a resolution from my friend Mike, who we'll be hearing from soon, and doing something new every day. I failed at this, but I remember one night when we were both desperately needing to do something and the clock was ticking. We drove down to Newport and we were walking by the old public library, which is now used as an event space and saw a sign for some affair. The windows were shining out lights of all colors and the bass was thumping, so we thought something was up. And then we realized in that moment that neither of us had ever crashed a party before. As we snuck past the entrance, amazed there was no security or bouncer in sight, we followed a winding stairwell up the carpeted steps and down into a hall and then into the eaves of a ballroom. We pushed the door open quietly to reveal a room full of people nearly our grandparents' ages grinding up on each other to the thumping bass. What was instinctively in our early 20-something mind that had failed to develop still a gross-out moment slowly faded to the realization that, you know what, yeah, good for these people. Celebrating anything, including one's sexuality, is independent of age. We smiled, politely closed the door, and checked off party crashing from the list. The year after my co-host Harris successfully took a photo of himself every day for a year as a resolution, I decided to try the same. This was fantastic in that sharing these photos made me feel more connected with people I cared about and loved. Even when I was being wheeled into the emergency room with appendicitis, I still snapped a photo of myself before surgery, which would happen in the dead of night, and afterward, well, hashtag surgery selfies. It was when a mutual friend began to write about how people taking so many selfies had ego problems and lacked the ability to validate themselves that I paused and felt deeply embarrassed. I regret stopping that resolution to this day, but I did, unwilling to admit that doing something positive for myself is a reward in and of itself, and no such embarrassment was warranted. with us today because he is moving from Washington DC to Boston and is living in a world of packing boxes and goodbyes. So no witty banter today. Instead, we'll start with our first story from my co-host, Harris Laparoff. I've always considered myself pretty good at resolutions. 
It's been important to me to believe that when I observe a shortcoming in myself, something I'm not happy with in how I behave or treat others, or something about the limits of my abilities, it's been important to believe that I could identify the source of that shortcoming, identify the behaviors I'd like to see in myself to overcome them, and set a rule for doing so. It's important to me to think that when I don't like who I am, I can change. When I was a sophomore in high school, for example, just after I had gone through my first serious romantic breakup, I found myself in a place that I didn't like. I was lonely, and I was sad, and shy, and quiet. I decided that the best way to address this was to put myself out there more visibly than I was used to. With only a little bit of thought, I made a resolution that I thought would help me. The resolution was that whenever I found that I wanted to do something, but I held myself back because I was worried it would be too embarrassing, I had to do it. This isn't a story about me doing anything incredibly embarrassing, though. I think, despite the resolution, I must still have had the presence of mind to avoid doing anything that would have been too truly terrible. But making this resolution did help me to push myself to be a little less shy. I went up to people I wanted to be friends with and started hanging out with them. I did goofy things like decide to wear pink pants to school just because I had them and I could. I climbed trees whenever I wanted, I brought bubble solution to school with me in blue bubbles whenever I had a moment. I wore fuzzy and fluorescently colored scarves and hats that I crocheted for myself. I remember one Valentine's Day I came to school with a stack of paper hearts and encouraged people to write things on them and then stick them to me. Obviously I've matured since high school and stepped back the level of goofiness I took on then. I try to be sincere in my interactions and not gimmicky. I try to be thoughtful about the ways that I take up space or draw attention to myself. But I still think a lot about how during that time period, I discovered that when I lived impulsively and visibly, I was met by the people around me with affection and approval, not with shame. Though some of my behaviors at that time still feel like they were gimmicks masking my real personality, seeing that I didn't have to be afraid of the people around me taught me a confidence in myself that I had previously lacked. A confidence that I still carry with me, today. But I also want to talk about a resolution that I had trouble keeping for years. When I was a sophomore in college, my family bought me a guitar for my birthday. Over my lifetime, I've cultivated interest in so many creative pursuits that it felt like a personal failing that the ability to make music wasn't one of them. But after I received the guitar, it sat quietly in the corner of my room for months. When New Year's came, I resolved that I would learn to play it that year. And then I didn't. I began to call it my optimistic guitar, as in the guitar itself was optimistic that I would someday pick it up. The optimistic guitar followed me as I moved from one dorm to another, then one house to another. I justified its presence, thinking, well, even though I can't play it, at least it's nice having a guitar around for other people to play sometimes. And that's how it stayed, until one year I found myself again truly lonely and sad. Oberlin College is located in the tiny town of Oberlin, Ohio. By this time, I had graduated from Oberlin College, but I was still living in Oberlin, the town, while working for the college as a web developer. 
Oberlin's young person's social scene is dominated by the student body, and it was pretty hard for me, no longer a student, to find a social life outside of that. The friends I had in town who cared for me I could count on one hand. I knew it was going to be that way, I went into the decision to live in town with my eyes open, but it was still hard actually living it. I spent a lot of evenings in my room wishing someone would call me up to hang out or just to talk. I started to think about loneliness and solitude as a circumstance, not as a feeling to be fought, but as something that could be leaned into, that could be made productive or even enjoyable with the right attitude and behaviors. And I started to look at my guitar. I picked it up in the first time in those three years since I had acquired it from my family and started to teach myself the basics. One of the things that I learned then was that there are certain changes as big as being more outgoing as a person or as small as learning to strum a few chords that have to be hit at just the right moment. I wasn't ready for my guitar while I was still in college, but when, years later, I was in a moment of need, it was waiting for me. The other thing that I learned is that it's easiest for me to make and keep resolutions when I'm feeling down. That it's in the depths of desperate dissatisfaction with who I am as a person and where my life is at that I'm able to make the most productive change. I wouldn't say that I ever got to be a good guitar player, but I learned enough to play some songs for myself and occasionally others. And I grew to appreciate practicing as a pastime that is simultaneously relaxing and productive for me. I still turn to it frequently when I'm stressed, lonely, or just at a loss for things to do with myself. It's nothing fancy, and my playing and singing are still pretty rough, but I want to share a song with you now. Not something that I wrote, that's still something I haven't done, you know, maybe someday I'll make a resolution to become a songwriter. But this is a song that, around the time I was teaching myself to play guitar, my dear friend Otta wrote, and she taught me how to play it. I could stay all day with you, my love We could waste our time well I don't mind if you use my toothbrush Can't look. 
the dove and the thrush, baby hush, baby hush. And if we wait a few more months, we'll have one, we'll have one. Clean new sheets and gently we'll make love. Maybe we'll have someday. Maybe we'll have love. That story was by Harris Leperoff founder of The Second Page, Boston resident, and wandering spirit. The song was by Ada Hetko. Now for a story by Emma Anderson. In second grade, I made a New Year's resolution to have more fun because my teacher made me write one. I did try to argue, precociously saying that the Roman calendar was just a construct, but to no avail. And since it had worked for my summer journal assignment to write every day, we went to, insert place here, it was fun. I figured that would work for her. FYI, 1995, the year my dad went through chemo and I was forced to go to occupational therapy that I found awful and humiliating, was not a fun year. By fourth grade, I was resolving to stop procrastinating, which had become my kryptonite. I probably used this with my teachers for five years straight, and they always agreed with me. Though I had no idea how to go about it. That's the thing about resolutions. For as much as we talk about them and use them as buzzwords, they're pretty useless as a path forward. As I was growing up and hearing adults talk about New Year's resolutions, I was pretty sure the point of them was to follow them through January and then ignore them the rest of the year and feel guilty when you realized you hadn't carried them out and I was great at feeling guilty. As an experienced perfectionist by age 14, I found some perverse pleasure in internally punishing myself for failing to meet my goals. Plus, I had realized that resolutions in and of themselves could be punishment. In high school, I started telling people that I didn't make resolutions, but I always had a secret one, and it was always to eat less sugar and lose 10 pounds. I deprived myself of salt and butter too, for good measure. Though again, mostly in January. That's what women were supposed to do, right? That's certainly what Meg Ryan made it seem like in You've Got Mail. Or was it when Harry met Sally? It took me years, and let's be honest, a lot of therapy, to learn how to make goals and progress that weren't inherently punishment. And a lot of it had to do with being introduced to the replacement of the word resolution with intention. Resolutions left a lot of room for failure and self-flagellation, but intentions were guides, easy to check in on and refocus without giving up completely. At the start of 2015, a friend introduced me to a New Year's workbook by Susanna Conway. By the way, it's free and online, and I absolutely recommend it. Yeah, it's new agey and woo-woo and full of feelings, but that's what I like and no one else had ever asked me to think about the previous year, where I had challenges and successes, in order to set intentions for the next year. 
In a Hermione Granger kind of way, I needed homework in order to be able to envision a future beyond the next week or month. It felt so good to do that kind of writing and reflecting, 30 pages worth, by the way, that I've kept up the tradition and completed it for the fourth time this year. I like to look back on my writing from the previous years and see how I've changed. I look at my previously set intentions and see whether they still fit, whether I want to carry on using them. Sometimes I do. After all, the Roman calendar is just an arbitrary construct. That story was by Emma Anderson. Emma lives in Greenfield, Massachusetts. She spends her time making delicious food, playing music, and calling contradances. And now, for a final story from my friend, Michael Gergelis. Saturday, January 1st, 2011. It's late morning when I call my friend Sean. Let's get brunch, I say. I'm hungover, he says. I know this. I drove him home last night. But I don't think he sounds that bad. Come on, I say. Drink some water and get some food with me. I need to do something new today. He groans, but agrees. We have the same task. Us and a group of friends decided to jointly take on a sweeping New Year's resolution. Do something new every single day. For the whole year. And today, I wanted to eat at the Pepper Pod. The Pod is an old-fashioned greasy spoon on a historic street near our hometown. Cigarette smoke still lingers in the air, defiant of the recent law passed just across the river to eliminate smoking from restaurants. In a way, it seems right. It's hard to imagine the yellowed plastic seats and brown cushions without the smell of the third smoke from the regulars of the morning. It's atmosphere, not health hazard. But I only know that now, because the Pepper Pod is also a family-owned restaurant, and they're closed on New Year's Day. Sean and I stood in front of the sign that chilly morning, and we both groaned. It's okay, I say. There's a place down the street I haven't tried before either. I have all year to eat at the Pepper Pod. The other place is good. I have a goat cheese frittata. Monday, January 1st, 2018. One of our cats headbutts me awake. It is 5.30 in the morning, which is 30 minutes earlier than normal feeding time. I try and go back to sleep, but she's a stubborn brat when she's hungry, and eventually I get up anyway. After I set the food down in the normal spots, I sit on the couch in the dark. All of the drapes and blinds of the windows are closed except one by the door, a small crack of light from the moon outside. It's the last day of my holiday vacation. It's snowing outside. I watch it for a while. We start cleaning around 10. 
We did nothing but watch TV the day before, and the house is a mess. There's floors to mop, counters to wipe, clothes to wash. I add items to a grocery list that I need to pick up today. Last time I went, several things were out of stock, and I'm cooking tonight like normal. Do you want tea? I asked my girlfriend. Sure, I'll take a cup. What kind do you want? Cine spice, please. We've drank this since October. I put the kettle on. I take some cardboard down to the basement and notice one of the cats staring at the drain by the running washing machine. A small ring of muddy water expands from the drain. I can see it's touched a nearby box and some of the towels. I drop everything and grab the cat. Sweetheart, I shout, the drain is flooding. I put the cat on the stairs and pull off my socks. The puddle isn't deep, but the water is cold. I lift the cover, stick my hand down the pipe. I feel some lint, but no blockage. Did the pipe freeze? My girlfriend shouts down from the stairs. Both cats are there now, staring down at me with huge eyes. I rush for the bathroom, grab a plunger. We're lucky. It fits the drain perfectly. I pump, splashing water on my pants and hoodie. My mind races. Who do I call if this doesn't work? Will the whole basement flood? How much is this going to cost? The plunger pops from the floor, and the water lowers down the drain. I watch it drop until I can't see it anymore. Did it work? She asks. It worked, I say. I sigh and find a dry towel to clean up the mess. Later, after the day has passed with chores and cooking and the last minutes of relaxing before going back to the work week, my girlfriend turns to me. Any resolutions? She asks. Eh, I say, nothing specific. I just want to get through the year. She nods and puts her head on my chest. I fall asleep watching TV. Sunday, January 2nd, 2011. We watched V for Vendetta at the party on New Year's Eve because we were at Wes's house and we always ended up watching that movie when we were there for long nights. In one scene, the masked revolutionary cooks the main character a breakfast called Eggs in a Basket. I decided to make it for myself. I'm new to the kitchen. When my mom sees me cooking, she gets a look on her face like I'm handling a deadly snake. Don't burn anything, she says. I've burned eggs before. I've watched a slice of deli ham char to ash in burning hot oil before my horrified eyes. There's a learning curve. I try to keep it simple. Butter two slices of bread, set them to fry in a pan on medium heat. Place a slice of deli meat and a slice of cheese on each piece of bread. Top with another slice of bread, topside buttered. Fry both sides of the sandwiches until golden brown. Poach two eggs and place one on top of each sandwich. Serve immediately. I managed to pull it off without a hitch, and I eat them in the breezeway. Overly proud of myself. It isn't until a few weeks later when I'm cooking the same meal for a friend that I realize what I've made isn't eggs in a basket at all. It's something closer to a croque madame, but without any of the distinguishing features like Gruyere cheese, a brioche bread, or bechamel sauce. My friend mentions this as well. This is just a ham melt with an egg on top, they say. Thoroughly underwhelmed. I laugh it off and dig into mine. Somehow the meal feels special to me, like it's my own breakfast invention. Eating it feels like the start of something. Tuesday, January 2nd, 2018. I think the pipes are frozen. 
None of the faucets work. I get this text from my girlfriend around 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm at my desk at work. I think of the overflowing drain the day before. I start a Google search for frozen pipes and how to fix them. I don't know what to do, she texts. I have to get to the vet for the appointment. Go on ahead, I text back. I'll look up what to do. It doesn't look good. Finding where your pipe is frozen can be difficult and time-consuming, to say nothing of actually getting it to thaw. I searched through several websites for directions. All of them start with the same thing. When in doubt, call a professional plumber. Every article explains that frozen pipes are nothing to sleep on. A pipe could burst and do serious water damage. I worry about the cost of calling a plumber, but worry even more about coming home to a flooded basement and a mounted cleanup bill. I grab my coat and hop in the car. All the way back, I imagine the damage I'd find in the basement. I worry about the cats in the workshop that we had just set up down there and our washer and dryer. I pull into the driveway and rush into the house. Everything looks okay. I check the faucets, and like she said, nothing comes out. But I frown at this. I brushed my teeth that morning like normal. The faucets worked just a few hours before. Had all of the pipes frozen since then? That didn't seem likely. I check downstairs. All is well. I wonder what else it could be. Then, standing on the porch, I notice a man in a uniform placing door flyers on each house in the neighborhood. A van idles at the top of the street. It has the Waterworks logo on the side. Did a water main break? I call to the man in uniform. He's placing a flyer on the house across the street. Sure did, he calls back. How long will it be out? Oh, about four to six hours, I'd say. Maybe eight if it's a tricky one. I nod. That explains it. I text my girlfriend to let her know and head back to work. When I get there, nothing has changed at my workstation. I go get more coffee. Monday, January 3rd, 2011. I pull into the parking lot of a lab early in the morning with a piece of paper in my hand. My new thing today was easy. I was hired in an on-the-spot interview for a Target opening in the area a few days ago, but employment was contingent on a clear drug test. This was the place they suggested. I walk into a small waiting room and approach the counter. The receptionist checks me in and asks me to wait. Beside myself, there's an older woman in a puffy maroon jacket and a fellow in paint-stained jeans and steel-toed boots. They look as tired as me, and I woke up around 5 to get here on time. A few minutes pass. The older woman mumbles something to herself and gets up. For a second, I think she's leaving, but she heads for the door leading deeper into the office. I look at the receptionist's window, but it's empty. The woman disappears. I don't say anything. A nurse in scrubs comes through the door a bit later and calls my name. She escorts me back to an examination room. It's much like any room you've been in at the doctor's office. A rolling stool, a padded bench covered in tissue paper, a biohazard box for used needles. Off to the side of the room, a vibrant blue door was covered with yellow caution tape. On it was taped a sheet of notepaper. Not a bathroom, it read. We need enough up to the line, the nurse said. She handed me a cup and showed me the groove on the side of it. I'll step out in the hall. You can use the room there. She pointed to the blue door. When the nurse was gone, I approached the door and tried to open it. But it didn't budge. I tried again, but still nothing. For a second, I was confused. Didn't she say to use that room? 
but then again, the note did say not a bathroom. Maybe I could just fill the cup in the examination room, but wouldn't it be more sanitary in the bathroom? As I deliberated, the blue door suddenly unlocked and opened. Out came the old woman in the maroon coat, obviously frustrated and flustered. It doesn't flush, she muttered, and shuffled out. I'll admit I stood stunned for about 30 seconds parsing out what had happened. When I did enter the blue door, I found that the woman either could not or did not read the sign. Indeed, the toilet within didn't flush, so everything that she had left was still sitting there. I filled that cup as quickly as I could. Wednesday, January 3rd. 2018. I'm drafting story ideas for the upcoming resolutions episode of the Second Page Podcast. During the day, I reach out to Sean to talk. We chew the fat a while, discuss the podcast, toss ideas around. I laugh to myself and comment on something. I'm starting to notice that all of my stories are coming from when we were kids or in college, I say. I barely have any recent stories to tell. I guess I'm just a boring person now. (laughs) It's hard to have adventures when you're holding down a full-time job. He says it without skipping a beat. As with many times in my life, Sean's observations strike true and make me reflect. I come away from the conversation slightly sadder. Somehow it was less disheartening to think that I had grown up to be a boring person rather than the fact that I just had less time in my day to be interesting. I sometimes think back to 2011, to the year I committed to do something new every single day. It sounds daunting, like most resolutions do. We build them up into huge changes, opportunities to leave behind what we were and become what we want to be. We want to get in better shape, we want to quit smoking, we want a new job. We want to make time for that hobby. Society encourages it. Businesses market to it. Hashtag new year, new me. You can be a better person. You can start over. This is your chance. Take advantage of this limited time offer. By the end of 2011, I had done something new every day. Only two people, including myself and our group of friends, stuck with it the whole way through. But to be honest, I remember very few of the new things, because they weren't life-changing or groundbreaking. They were small. They had to be. One day, I folded my first origami crane. Another, I took a different route to work, and another, I took a shower in the dark. Many days, I tried a new restaurant, or watched a new show, or checked out a new movie. One time, I ate an entire meal with chopsticks. And later, I did the same thing, but left-handed. Have I changed as a person because of these? Am I more interesting? More complete? Probably not. None of these are special or lasting or overtly meaningful. But most mundane tasks aren't. And such things build our days like grains of sand build a beach. And like a beach, we can only see the changes on a scale unfathomable from the day-to-day view. It's only in retrospect do we see the difference. Perhaps you could say that the resolution was actually the easiest one you could possibly choose. Is it possible not to do something new each day? Is it possible not to change or grow or experience something differently than you've ever done before? 
maybe it's just a matter of perspective. But if that's the case, then Sean might be wrong. Even with a full-time job, there are adventures to be had. Small ones, yeah. But from 2011 alone, I know I have over 300 small adventures hidden away somewhere in my history. 300 minor experiences or challenges that I encountered that peppered my day with an extra bit of flavor. It may just be as simple as noticing it. What new thing did you do today? That story was by Michael Dragelis. Michael is an alumni from Center College, class of 2010, and Northern Kentucky University, class of 2017. A collector of books, tea, and folklore, he works in Cincinnati, Ohio, to make textbooks cheaper for students everywhere. And that's our show this week. Keep up with coming episodes by following us on Twitter at the handle The Second Page or at facebook.com slash secondpagestories. Subscribe to us from your podcast service of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and from our website, secondpage.org. We're collecting stories this week for upcoming episode on gender, so feel free to get those in. This week we used music from Poddington Bear, Josh Woodward, and myself, Sean Hansen. Check these out on the links on our website. See you next week.